Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First, we just want to say that as this episode is being released, ElixirConf US 2023 is kicking off. So that's exciting. I personally won't be attending the conference in person. So I'll be virtually there. So look for me online. And David, where are you going to be? I'm going to be there. I'm like two hours away <laughs> like from ElixirConf Orlando. So yeah, of course I'll be there. I'll, I'll be there in person. Uh, I think I got a couple of Thinking Elixir shirts, purple Thinking Elixir shirts. So if you're there in person, you can look for me. Awesome. Yes. I'll be online. I've got family obligations that are keeping me here. I'd love to be there in person, but I can't do it this year. Well, with that covered, let's get into the news. All right. First up, we got Elixir 1.15.5 released. I didn't see anything notable out of here. So it's like it's pretty specific, like bug fixes. We have a link to the release notes, but I doubt that if you've had problems with 1.15.4, you probably don't need to upgrade to this one. I don't see any security related things, but if you did run into some weird stuff, pretty weird stuff, then maybe 1.15.5 will help. And next up, live book code cells are getting Vim and Emacs support. So I thought that was pretty neat. Jesse Cook tipped us off about this new feature. So I kind of view this as a quality of life improvement for people who favor these alternate keyboard configurations. So, you know, if you really love your Vim or your Emacs key bindings for navigating around in code, then this improvement would really be for you. So the code cells are implemented using Monaco as the way of embedding that into the live book. And apparently this is made possible using some Monaco, Vim, and Emacs packages. Plug that in and give that some support. So that's pretty cool. All right. Say so a quote from the book Adopting Elixir, which was published like five years ago, has been going around social media and Elixir forums. So I just want to bring it up. It was pretty compelling. It's compelling to me, at least because there's some like good numbers in here. But, you know, with all numbers and marketing speak, maybe take it with a grain of salt. But here's the quote. It's all about how Elixir benefited Pinterest. And the, the headline is, that Pinterest saved $2 million a year by adopting Elixir, right? So that's that's the context here. Here's the quote. So Jose starts with asking, how has your company benefited from Elixir? All right, so from Pinterest's point of view, the fellow named Steve says, that's pretty easy. When I started on the spam team, we had close to 1,400 servers running. When we converted several parts to Elixir, we reduced that by around 95%. Yeesh. One of the systems that ran on 200 Python servers now runs on four Elixir servers can actually run on two servers, but we felt that four provided more fault tolerance and the combined effect of better architecture and Elixir saved Pinterest over $2 million per year in server costs. In addition, the performance and reliability of the systems went up despite running on drastically less hardware. When our notification system was running on Java, it was on 30 C32XL instances. Those are AWS names for honk and computers. When we switched over to Elixir, we could run on 15, so half. Despite running on less hardware, the response times dropped significantly, as did errors. Here's more context, right? Because, you know, from there, if you just say, oh, we ported stuff over, you know, from one language to another, almost 100% of the time, you're going to be like, that's apples to oranges because those are different architectures, right? So to respond to that kind of thought, here's what Steve says. I wrote both systems. They had identical architectures. They were implementing the same design as well. All right, point blank, right? <laughs> All right, he continues on, though. Another fun thing is that the Java version had a super fun race condition, sarcasm, <laughs> that would cause people's notifications to appear in another language. Nice. So you're, you're an English-speaking customer, and you get like a, a Dutch notification. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the Elixir version simply could not break in that way, and it came down to GC, garbage collection. We had a read path and a write path, and both were high volume, and I simply could not get Java's garbage collection to work both reliably and with the desired latency. I spent a solid month reading the garbage collection manuals, optimizing bits of the system, load testing, deploying the fixes. It still suffered from horrible tail latency, and I had to split the read and write paths into separate services. Worse, due to the shoddy exponential backoff implementation on mobile clients, problems with backend data services would cause request amplification, which would overwhelm and take down the service. I think Twitter suffered from that. Excuse me, X, formerly known as Twitter. Switching to Elixir fixed all these problems, and Elixir would just absorb the extra requests and slow down a bit, but it never fell over. 
All right, end of quote. And end of the Pinterest story. All that felt really compelling to me. I thought I would share. If you want to know more information about that, that's all in the Adopting Elixir book published by Prague Prague. It's about five years old at this point, but still apparently very relevant. Yeah, and there's a, a linked blog post from Paraxial where Michael Lubis is talking about some of those numbers, putting that to actual server numbers and the costs and breaking that down a little bit. So it's really cool. And that kind of leads into this next story. So I liked a tweet I saw by Dave Lucia about what people can accomplish with Elixir in a short amount of time. It was like a a little tease tweet, right? This is what it says. Like only in Elixir can you have a team of two developers shipping a Lua integration for end users, binary protocol for firmware, globally connected IoT devices, state propagation via CRDTs, real-time UI displaying events, end-to-end integration tests, and in three months. What's great is like the Twitter thread. I'm still going to call it Twitter, right? I'm just, I'm not giving in to calling it X. <laughs> okay. so it's, it's still a Twitter thread. <laughs> so what's nice about that is he breaks down what these mean. Like, so a lot of these things like, wow, that's like really big words and scary ideas. What I think is interesting is, you know, the globally connected IoT devices. Well, that's like nerves, right? With maybe WebSocket connections. And you have state propagation via CRDTs is actually just Phoenix Tracker and PubSub It's propagating IoT device status across the cluster. And then real-time UI displaying events. Well, that's like live view. But really, I mean, what I think is so cool about it is these things are pretty simple when you understand what they're talking about. But it doesn't change the fact that these are still really advanced features and abilities. I think it still is true to the point that a small team in a small amount of time can deliver some really advanced stuff because of Elixir and Phoenix, because of what's built into those tools and that platform. So thanks, Dave, for sharing that. thought it was cool. Yeah, and, and not to forget the Lua integration that involved Lua Earl too. So some Robert Verding work in there too. Not to say it's all Elixir, you know, Erlang's a big part of that, of course. Moving on, Jeffrey Lessel shared a fun observation. He was at the Rubik's Cube competition with his son and he liked the slick live timing page used by the World Cube Association. And after a little browser inspection, a little a little hackering, as some folks would consider, I don't know if you all remember that. That was funny. There was some politician that thought they were getting hacked, but all all it was happening was they were just inspecting the HTML source. <laughs> that was all it was. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so, <laughs> distraction. After a little browser inspection, he noticed it was a Phoenix Live View page. The project also happens to be an open source project and on GitHub. So we've got a link to that repo. So all this is really nice, right? It reveals that, that the creator is none other than the Jonathan Klosko, the developer behind Livebook and all the cool stuff happening there. So pretty interesting, like a little intersection of life there. We've talked to Jonathan several times before and we learned of his Rubik's Cube skills and interest. And we liked how Jonathan is an example of ways we can contribute to interests and groups that we associate with and make it open source at the same time. Yeah, it's a cool way to contribute. Got a personal interest in Rubik's Cube? Build them a site. <laughs> Shows the timer. Use LiveView. Make it open source. Really nice. And next up, Zach Daniel of the Ash Framework experiments with adding a new Atomics feature to Ash. So the idea is it can attach expression-based changes to change sets to be executed in the data layer when the action is performed. So think of wanting to express the idea of incrementing a value by a number, like a size, rather than setting it to just the new computed value. So this is actually more like kind of CRDTs, where you express the desired change, but not the end result of the action. And so he's got a nice write-up on what Atomics is, what it can do, what it can't do at this point. But with Ash's recent double-entry accounting library, this just kind of fired off some little alarm bells in my brain saying, oh, this is totally directly applicable there when you're talking about incrementing and decrementing account values from different things, but wanting to be atomic and resilient to any kinds of transaction problems and multiple sources trying to update the same tables or anything like that. And it's the kind of thing that I think, like Surface UI, you know, you get all these interesting ideas that can be tried out in one place, and then maybe they even find a home outside of that library. Like maybe this would have some broader application outside of Ash if things all work out well. So just exciting to see that kind of progress and glad he's sharing it publicly. All right, next up, well, thanks to Paolo Valente, Elixir gets a new reinforcement learning library for NX and machine learning. 
The library is called Rain. Nice little pen there. And lives under the Dockyard GitHub organization. So we got a link to it. Rain is an R-E-I-N. Beginning word of reinforcement, right? We reached out to Paolo for some insight on what this means. And, and this is what he explained. That Rain is a library that implements reinforcement learning algorithms in NX. There are many algorithms out there. So this library will continue to evolve. But we have already have quite a few of them implemented. And reinforcement learning, probably your next question is, what is this, <laughs> is an area of machine learning where the algorithms are trained through exploring some environment, which is usually simulated. And from the experience collected, the algorithms should learn how to exploit that environment. It's like a more declarative way of solving problems. So instead of the normal, like, here's the expected answer for the input that's found in supervised learning. Reinforcement learning was used to train Go and chess AI players and was also used to train LLMs such as Llama and GPT. So it's highly relevant, right? So before Rain, the only way you could use an RL-trained algorithm in NX was to train it in Python and then export the architecture and weights to NX. And so with Rain, you can now also train and or fine-tune the models directly in NX. So really, really nice. I like to think of like, this is an analog to like Pavlov's experiment, you know, where you just, <laughs> it's, it's not anything to do with that, but like, it's just a, it's an, it's a simulated reward system, right? Like you reward it by getting the right answers. Right. And so it learns that part and it's just more consistently gets the right answers that way. I could be totally wrong. It totally makes sense when I think about like simulating the go game or chess, right? It's like, here's a simulated board and the rules on movement are enforced, but What's the right way to win? There is no right way, right? So you're just letting the the AI just experiment and play with it in order to infer how to play, like based on what it can just divine, like, oh, these rules are allowed. And this is how I know when I've succeeded at something or failed at something. Oh, there you go. So thanks for Rain Paolo Valente. And I hope that continues to develop. And it looks like a very critical piece of the ML environment in NX. And last up, I just want to share a blog post I just published. I was wanting to explore running asynchronous tasks from a live view. Like that topic has been covered, right? Like there's lots of ways to do it. I suspect there's some more announcements that we'll be seeing about that and alternate ways of doing that in the future. But I was trying to do something slightly different, which is more inspired by like a chat GPT interface, right? If you're familiar with chat GPT and the whole teletype text is flowing in, then you realize really what you want in that situation is I want the side effects, which is the text as it's flowing in And I don't want to wait for the entire task to complete and say, here's the final answer. There's different types of things. Like if I'm doing image compression or something like that, I want it when it's all the way done, give me the image that's compressed or do some kind of analysis on something. And I want the final result. But for those situations where I want the side effects, the messages that are passed during the process, that's what I was trying to do. So what I think is interesting is Elixir has like many powerful runtime features, right? All credited to the beam. And we've got processors, monitors, links, supervisors and stuff. And sometimes the hardest part really is just knowing which of these building blocks and in which configuration should I hook them together to get what I want. And so I wrote a blog post that explores the linking processes and trapping exits for running a async task from a live view. The fun way I like to look at processes. I think of processes as people. When you start to model a, a process in your mind as like, oh, this is a person and they have two people and they need to talk and they send messages and they have mailboxes and that's how they communicate, then everything seems to be a lot more natural, right? It just kind of makes more sense to me in my brain because like, hey, we're social creatures, right? I realized that when we link processes together, it's a lot like Romeo and Juliet, a tragic love story. When Juliet dies, it causes Romeo to die as well because the two are linked. And this is the same for linked processes, right? But but if we can trap exits, then our live view will still be notified that a task has ended, that the process has died, but the live view won't be killed. And just that little simple ability to say I'm trapping exits and linking a live view to a task means I can do some really powerful stuff, really have some nice clean code, and I can run async tasks in a different way where like the main goal is if my live view goes away, it crashes, the user navigates away, I want that task to immediately die. I don't want it to be supervised separately and restarted and continue because the whole point is the side effects that are being displayed to the user. So like it's a different scenario, 
And I had a lot of fun exploring that and showing how to do that, complete with like easy code. So I've got a link to that in the show notes. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Victor Bjorklund. Victor, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. So I'm happy to have you come on because you recently were writing about creating custom Phoenix generators, right? Like these are like project generators, like for kicking off a new Phoenix project. Why might I want to create a custom one? What are the benefits? Where does it not make sense? Because I think that also is a very valuable thing for us to kind of get our heads around. Like we don't want to just take on new technology for the sake of it. Like we want to make sure it's solving our problems. So I'm happy to have you come on and talk about how this is helping you solve problems and helping us get our heads around like how it might help different people in different situations. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I'm raised and born in Stockholm, Sweden, the founding place of uh, the Beam and Erlang. But at the moment, I'm uh, based in uh, Warsaw, Poland, which I guess is somewhat of European capital of Elixir, since there are so many Elixir devs based here. Yeah, it happens to be where uh, Jose is living. So exactly. Somewhere around there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, in my, my normal days, I work both as a freelance Elixir developer and, you know, some Svelte too, but my passion is Elixir. And I also run outstaffing agency called jawdropping.io. At the moment, that's a little bit on the low burner, you know, enjoy so much writing the code myself. <laughs> so <laughs> That's that's the case. So most of my time is working on code. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to Elixir. Like you were, you know, in Stockholm, right? Where where the Ericsson is based. You may have had exposure to Erlang. I don't know if that's true or not. But how did you come to Elixir? My my journey there is probably a little bit uh, different than for many people. I actually started programming when I was around 12 or something like that. Not really what you would call programming. It's just like writing these very simple text-based games in, I think it was QBasic. And, you know, trying to do something in C++ and having no idea what I'm doing. And then for a couple of years, I didn't really explore it much further. And I ended up going actually to law school in university. I came out as a lawyer, but I never really worked as a lawyer. I directly jumped in in a marketing role instead. So I worked for a couple of years in growth marketing for a couple of startups. And this whole time, I was always a bit more focused on the technical side. I really liked setting up all of the marketing systems and stuff like that. And I started to kind of code some of my own tools and, you know, maybe build some campaign website, you know, with some, you know, hey, we don't need to take in the developers that would take their time. I can do it, you know, sort of more like I really enjoy doing it. And then I actually realized that, you know, why am I doing marketing when I really enjoy doing marketing, but my passion is really coding. And I also started to work a little bit closer to some other developers. And I realized that they don't really have any magic, you know? It's smart people, but there is nothing, you know, that separates a developer from other humans. And I realized that I know a lot of things that they know. I know some things better than they do and some things I don't know. So then I realized that, you know, there is really no reason for me not to work as a developer instead. And that's when I started to focus on it more. In the beginning, it was actually... JavaScript, React, later Svelte, and also Node.js. I love that story. Just like that, that circuitous path to get you to programming. And what I think is encouraging about that is people who hear this and they're like, you know, I didn't do coding in college, so I can't be a programmer. It's like, you know, you're demonstrating, no, that doesn't have to be the case, right? Like if you have a passion for it, 
that means that you have the ability and the drive to learn it on your own, then a lot of people can take a different route to get there. So I, th- I think that's great. So then you ended up into, into JavaScript, right? JavaScript is a great pathway into programming just because like the entire runtime is available on everyone's computer in a browser. So then how did you end up getting to Elixir? So basically I was doing uh, Node.js and I was doing some Python too, but not very much. I explored a little bit Golang. I, I guess the reason is like somewhere deep down, I felt like I hadn't found the right one yet. The way Node.js works, for me, it didn't 100% click, you know, for a lot of reasons. It sounds very silly, but, you know, it was a combination of, I saw somebody on YouTube talk about Elixir, uh, a React developer, I think his name is Ben Abad. He has a really good YouTube channel. And he talked about Elixir. I think he never actually pursued it in the end, but he talked about how it's very good for building real-time systems and, you know, working with media and stuff like that. And then also the other silly part was, you know, learning about Beam and Erlang and that it came from Sweden. And I almost felt like, you know, I have to try it because, you know, it's almost part of my identity as a Swedish person. <laughs> and I didn't expect to love it, but, you know, very early on, I felt like, wow, this is this is something. Great. All right. Well, I'm excited to jump into our topic then and see how your marketing background may have actually influenced some of what you're pursuing here. I don't know. Like, I'm <laughs> curious to, to see where this goes. Marketing via Phoenix new generators? <laughs> when I think of needing to create a lot of new Phoenix websites, I think of agencies. Ah, you know what? Yeah, very good point. So that, that's the first thing that think occurs to me. So let's just talk about the Phoenix generators. Like, what is it we're actually talking about? Of course, uh, it's a very wide term that doesn't really mean anything, but it, it's more about some kind of code that generates other code. So when we talk about generators in Phoenix, we usually talk about the generators that comes included in Phoenix, uh, such as, you know, uh, phoenix.new, or the different types of Phoenix uh, gen.live and generators like that. But, you know, in, in general, it can be any form of code that generates other code. Right. And uh, really, we use Phoenix generators or we can use Phoenix generators at multiple points along the path, right? We can say, you know, I'm creating a new Phoenix project or we could use generators to say, I want to create a new live view within a project, an existing one, or I want to generate a migration, which is something we may continue to do throughout the lifetime of a project. So there's lots of places where I think there's touch points. I think one thing it's also worth talking about is where do the generators live, right? Like in order to have access to this is we have to install Phoenix and Phoenix is not installed as a hex package in our project, right? It has to exist outside of our project because it has to be able to create the project. So to even get that set up, we use the hex archive install to install the version of Phoenix that we're going to be using, right? So like, that's where this whole process starts as what version of Phoenix we're using. So maybe you can kick us off on how we can get started with something like this. And like, if I want to customize that, how do, how do I do that? So yeah, as you said, we install the Phoenix version we want uh, through this hex archive installer. And you can go to GitHub and you can read the code for, for this. We're just going to call it installer from now on. And you can read the code there. And basically what we're doing is we're modifying that code. So instead of installing that code that we're getting from, from GitHub, we kind of hijack it and modify this code to make some changes there to make our installer do the things that we want. So we're pretty much hijacking this installer. I have looked at some of those installer code snippets before, and you see the templating logic to say, well, this is where we're going to drop in the name of their project that they gave us. And here's the name of the modules they gave us. And maybe some logic of, did they have this flag set to include or exclude blocks of code? Oh, man. Flashbacks to the time I PR'd up to Phoenix, the dash dash tailwind oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> flag. <laughs> this was before they introduced tailwind like officially. And as my implementation was completely different, mine was opt in. 
But oh man, so the repo is in the Phoenix Framework repo, but it's like considered like a sub app, but don't think Umbrella's here. It's like another folder inside of that. And so they published Phoenix from that repo, you know, Phoenix proper is like a library, one that you have in your mixed dependencies. And then they also publish PHX underscore new as a different package. And that's the one that you're telling Hex to go install, right? So it's installed in the sense of like the binaries available, and that's what generates all of these things that we're talking about. But yeah, this it's kind of wild, like how much logic goes in there. It's primary interface is a mixed task, right? Mix phx.new. And then you feed it all these, you know, flags in there. You're doing a pretty cool thing here. And you, you kind of have to like hijack it, as you said. I mean, you could think of it as like a fork too. I don't know if you guys are publishing it because it's kind of, I don't know why you would, right? It's your own stuff, right? But you kind of fork it internally maybe. And you got to add your own templates because the Phoenix generator stuff doesn't really support by itself, like the ability to go copy more templates and stuff, right? You can override like their templates in your project, but you can't really add more templates, which is what your whole blog post is about. It's pretty in-depth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So it's pretty much we just go in there. And I think, you know, it's probably really, really hard to, to build this from scratch. Probably had to be really, you know, knowledge about Elixir and, you know, be a very smart person. But if anybody's wondering, you know, it's not very hard to understand. Like, that's one thing that I really love with Elixir. The code is always very easy to understand, you know. Sometimes when I look at some, you know, JavaScript project or Python project, and, you know, it's like really smart people who built it. I have no idea how it's working. (laughs) But I feel like even when I look at really good Elixir code, it's totally understandable. That's one thing that I love. So I encourage everybody to just, you know, take a look. It's not very hard, you know, like it's templates that kind of, you can see the logic, you know, if this is marked, then, you know, copy this template. Otherwise copy this template and, you know, replace these variables with those variables. Yeah. So it's not rocket science to modify. It's probably rocket science to build it from scratch, but, you know, (laughs) to modify it, it's very easy to just go in and add something. Yeah, but maybe the weirdest part to understand is that like normally EEX templates, embedded Elixir templates here, they're normally done in in the sense of a website. We a long time ago with Phoenix, you would be like .html .eex, and you embed Elixir inside of HTML. It could have been anything though. These Phoenix generators are actually doing EEX, but on Elixir code, and so you have these different contexts that you kind of have to think in, kind of like macros you know <laughs> your macros are generating code or it's code that generates code for you and like kind of a you know compile time kind of way but these eex templates are you know it's it's, it's elixir executing on a template of elixir code so you have to yeah you just gotta hold all that context in your head as you're as you're writing these new custom templates that need to be copied out for your for your projects yeah and i think you know like it certainly looks a little bit different than maybe normal code if you're just building plain vanilla Phoenix apps, but it's not so different. Uh, I would say you understand it after like five minutes of looking at, you know, what they're doing. And I think also like as long as you kind of know your limits of, you know, what you can go in and change, for example, I would say, you know, adding a library package like I do in my article, That's kind of straightforward and, you know, there is not so many ways you can mess it up. But, you know, if you're, for example, thinking about modifying the auth generator, I would probably be a bit more careful and make sure that I know exactly every modification that I do and what it's doing to just make sure that I don't need to do some, you know, security bugs or something like that. But, you know, it kind of depends on what kind of changes you do, you know. Like for many changes, the worst thing that can happen is, you know, something looks a bit off or, you know, it doesn't work at all. So so for those that haven't read your article, you have a good example of like where this is really helpful. Do you want to give a, a short version of your article and what you do with it? Sure. So I, I give an example of how to add OBAN to all your projects, because I know for at least me, almost every project that I do right now, I add OBAN because it's just such a good good library. So I show a way how to use, you know, add that. And of course, you know, one might argue that 
doesn't take that long to add to one project, but you know, it adds up. If you do it 20 times, you know, it's, uh, it gets a bit repetitive. Well, I think it's still even just worth using that as an example, right? Showing this is how simple it can be. You're not getting the reader lost in all of the complexity of some other situation that may not actually apply to them. You're just like, this is how we tackle it. I would love to just talk a little bit about why you said, okay, I use open on everything. What other reasons can you think of why people might want to customize the Phoenix generator? Oh, yeah. As, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, if you start a lot of projects, it makes a lot of sense to add this. And I'm personally somebody who both real projects and, you know, kind of these projects that, you know, they might just live for a couple of hours. You know, I want to explore something or, you know, I bought another domain that I think that I'm going to build something on, you know, and <laughs> I, I start building on something and, you know, you want to get up and running as fast as possible. You could also argue that in a way that it's not only about saving time, but also if you have something that you want to do in a particular way, by adding it to a generator, you can make sure that it's done the same way every time. For example, I really like the Phoenix auth generators. I, I think they're really great and they're understandable, but I would not feel... 100% confident on, you know, setting up all of those files on my own, because I would be a bit worried that I would miss some file or some code that, you know, introduced some security bar because I'm not a security professional. So I feel confident in, you know, using this generator and getting code that is always the same. And, you know, I know that it's, it's good code. And you can apply the same mindset to something else. Perhaps you're, you always want to add some kind of function or you always want to add some type of template or something like that. And you just want to make sure that you don't forget or, you know, you do it the wrong way. All right. Well, Victor, I think I need to pause here and, and we need to disambiguate or just kind of clarify some things that are in my brain, right? So we've been talking also about like the hex archive install, like the version of Phoenix that's installed that we call when we're creating our project. And that's the thing that you're talking about also specifically in your blog post, where if I want to customize that process, I need to kind of fork what the normal Phoenix project is doing, and then install that locally. And then I can generate my projects that way. But then there's this other side of, I already have a project going, and I want to keep running the generator on my project, like generating a migration, generating a live view, that kind of a thing. So maybe you can kind of walk us through what is the difference and where is that line? Do I have that right? Help me out. Yeah, exactly. And the process is a little bit different because it's kind of easy to just fork the PX new thing and, you know, override it that way. But when it comes to the generators in an existing project, it's a little bit different because you probably don't want to fork the whole Phoenix project and, you know, replace the Phoenix library in your project, right? So fortunately enough, we have a kind of an escape hatch where Phoenix actually, when you're using one of the built-in generators, it will first look in your preview folder in your Phoenix project and see if you have any template files there. Then it will use those for the generators. If it doesn't, which most projects don't have, if you haven't done anything special, then it will look in the library of uh, the Phoenix library. So the, the way to change those is just simply to go into your dependencies and you locate the Phoenix project and you just find these template files. I don't remember exactly where they are, but they're not so hard to find. And then you just copy them into your priv folder and then you can make any you know, adjustments that you want to those templates, you know, it can be anything you want, want to change there pretty much. Nice. So David, it sounds like you've had some experience exploring this area, I think. What can you help uh, explain here? Yeah. Yeah. I was so already talked about like the tailwind side of things here, right? So that's for new projects. But I remember when I was exploring back when Phoenix contexts were introduced. Mm. Remember, this was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> this is Phoenix 1.3. Right. But that was like one of those big first times where you get a lot of generated code that we care a lot about. <laughs> right. 
And was at ThoughtBot at the time. And ThoughtBot has kind of a conventional way of setting up applications. And I was just looking at it at that point of time. And I remember diving into like all these generators and, you know, critiquing the way that they had created it. It was the first time I was introduced to like domain modeling instead of yeah, typical OOP kind of like Railsy kind of templates. So the domain design rather. So I was just really interested in it. And I just dived into how, like, how are they doing these generators? Where is it being stored? And I noticed that you can override it. And I, I just don't remember coming across that in the docs, but in the, in the, when I was looking at the code, I'm sure it's there somewhere. I just didn't see it. But in the code, I saw that, yeah, it's going to use your own apps, private templates in there first, if they're present, which they almost never are, right? So they just use the, the framework's own versions of these. And so that was a way to be able to like kind of bring in your own templates for your own patterns. It, that doesn't really help for like spinning up new projects in this case, like what, you know, Victor is doing. And that's a, that's a great option too, right? You got to do that. If you want to spin up new projects using Oban, got to fork the PHX new kind of stuff, right? But for ongoing stuff, like I, I have established the way that I do all live views and, you know, I, I have my own, you know, modules that I need to use on top of all of them, or I just wanted some conveniences and I always want to generate it with like a specific kind of mount logic. Maybe you're handling auth code, you know, in there for some reason and not using live sessions. That would be the way that you do it. You just write your own template and it'll, it'll use that instead. It's a nice escape patch. And if, it, if there's anything I learned about Elixir versus other languages is that Elixir seems to, or other frameworks rather, Elixir seems to give you a lot of a lot of escape hatches, and I really appreciate that. And that's more of like you know behaviors of developers that are working in Elixir. I've I've just noticed that more often. Like Ecto has some good escape hatches. You know, a lot of Elixir stuff has good escape hatches. The other day, I learned that you can you can tell IEX to use a different IEX file, right? Because that's that's another escape hatch. Like it'll load your project's IEX file, but it'll also load like if it's not there, then it'll load your like global IEX file. But then you can also pass in a flag of defining where that IEX file is, and it'll just load that one instead. There's lots of escape patches everywhere, and I just appreciate it in that moment. Gosh, it must have been, what, five years ago at this point when Phoenix 1.3 went out? I, I don't know if that's true. I, I it's, It feels like five years ago. Yeah, that even back then, there was escape patches for having these new templates on there. That's a long-winded way of saying, like, very nice that we have this ability and it's maybe not talked about enough, but then again, you know, agencies are probably more interested in that or folks that are starting a lot of new projects. So Victor, you know, we, we talked so much about generators so far, like generators is a way I, I think of like ejecting code for your control. And I know that there's another way of doing this and that's like macros where you'd see, where you'd see, like you kind of work with the framework. What, what's your what's your take on all that? Well, like, wh why do you prefer generators in this case, you know, versus like creating some kind of framework to customize, you know, templates or stuff, you know? And would it be helpful if Phoenix had macros that could help with this kind of stuff? What do you think? First of all, I think it's very interesting that you know Elixir both have a lot of you know generated code and it has a lot of macros. You know, something that you don't see so much in many other languages like javascript you know it's kind of frowned upon to have kind of generated code i've seen a lot of people not liking that but it, so it's just kind of a fun fact you know <laughs> i think that they both have their places and you know they both have their you know like benefits and downsides i wouldn't say i worked a lot but i, I tried the ash project and I, I really like it it gives a lot of the same benefits where you kind of can get the project up and running very fast and you get a lot of things built out from the from the scratch and also you avoid those kind of problems where you might make a mistake because you forget about some part of the code because you know the macro takes care of that so i think it has some of the same benefits and one benefit has over generated code is that in one way, it takes away a lot of code that occupies space in your project that can make the, the code a bit easier to read. And also the fact that, you know, it can be a little bit easier to update a macro. If you're using a macro from a library and somebody else updates it, you can hopefully just, you know, update that package and it's going to work. But with generated code, you have to go and you know compare the code from version to version but one of the downsides to macros is you know you don't see the code like that's that's one thing that i really like with elixir is that it's 
usually very easy to follow and see what is happening to your data, where is it going, all of those things where macros kind of introduces a little bit of magic. And yes, you can, of course, go to the macro code and see what it's doing, but you know, then you don't have it as easy and as understandable as if you have you know, the code in front of you. Like, personally, I don't think there is any right way to do it, kind of go between both. You know, sometimes I, I prefer the macros, sometimes I prefer you know, the code verbose written out. I think it's cool to think about generating code as, you know, the way we generate HTML. You're looking at text and you're just inserting or choosing which blocks of text to include or exclude. And that's really templating. There are certainly pros and cons, right? And one will have a better fit for different types of solutions. We're really here to talk mostly about templating and generating new projects like that. I think it's worth also talking about when this is not the right solution, when we don't want to go in this direction. And I just remember when it was released candidates of Phoenix where they were experimenting with the core components, right? That's like this fundamental new idea that was being put in. And I was pulling versions of these release candidates and trying out the new generators and seeing what is it going to give me in my core components? And then seeing how much they changed from like early versions of the RCs to the final version that was actually released. It was just an interesting point that it changes and what it generates into my project is, you know, once it, the code is in my project, it's like static, right? It's, it's there. It's not changing anymore on its own without me doing something to change it. You've probably thought a lot about this and when it's a good time to do it or not. So what are your thoughts? When you're starting to change anything in, you know, these kind of generators, you're kind of introducing some kind of responsibility on your own to always try to keep them up to date. So whenever there is a new version of Phoenix, you should probably make sure that you're doing the changes that they are doing, unless you know why you don't want to do them to make sure that, you know, if, if they're making some kind of changes for security reasons, you don't miss that. This has a cost of doing that. What I try to think about is whenever I want to make some change to a generator like this, try to think about how complex is the change you're doing and kind of how much time or mental effort is it saving you. If you're creating a lot of projects and you're constantly bothered by having to add, you know, for example, Uban to your project, that might be a good candidate. And then you have to ask yourself, how complex are the changes that we are doing to this template? And in the case of, for example, adding Uban, it's not very complex. It's going to be very easy to keep that generator up to date with any changes in the future. But... You know, if you're, for example, trying to build a totally different structure for your Phoenix project, that might be very difficult to maintain in the future because you're making so big changes to the generator. So it's kind of like balancing that complexity with how important it is to you. I've heard over the years, like the gen the Phoenix generators have always been a topic of discussion, a lot of discussion, and they've <laughs> been fairly like conservative on like what they do with the generators, right? They'll generate a skeleton of things and add a couple things to it, but it's, it's more like Ecto, right? Like, of course it's going to have Ecto. Phoenix depends on Ecto, but you can opt out of Ecto. You can also opt out of live dashboard and they'll, they'll add live dashboard, but it's Ecto is kind of like the de facto way of doing things. Live dashboard, there's no other dashboard for Phoenix Live View, it's kind of officially part of Phoenix, right? A lot of coordination there, but they've been conservative on like adding other non-Phoenix kind of things. I was actually a little bit surprised that Phoenix like adopted Tailwind like that as the default to me because that's a that's definitely like a third party kind of thing. They don't really have a have control over Tailwind. Same with all the JavaScript stuff, but I guess that's neither here or there. But but because Tailwind like has a lot of opinions on how you structure your HTML and it's coupled so much there, like it's it's hard to take it out. Not to complain about, it, I actually love Tailwind, but it's just like one of the first examples I see where they are more tightly coupling with like a non Phoenix thing, a non Elixir thing. And so, all right, all that to bring context to, I kind of wish that Phoenix generators would like 
allow more and and I'm not saying they're not, but I, I just wonder what it would look like if it would have more third-party maintainership of it. Okay, c- compare Rails generators. When you generate Rails projects, there's a thing called Webpacker. They'll generate Vue for you. They'll generate React for you. They'll generate Angular for you, right? You have to opt in to all those things. They'll generate the Wire one for you. I forget what it is, but their their WebSocket version of of LiveView, Hotwire, Hotwire. That's it. And yeah, they'll they'll have a like a lot of options there. And and I don't think that's them admitting that they're going to maintain that forever and ever, right? I, I I suspect that that's kind of a third party maintaining relationship. So if the View stuff breaks because you know the View three came out or View four came out or something. I guess there's an expectation that maybe that stuff, the generator stuff would need to be updated and somebody eventually will come to do that. It's not necessarily like the Phoenix core team's responsibility to do that. Right. So, and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about here is like, all right, imagine a world where Victor, you didn't have to fork Phoenix new, right. To get open in there that all you had to do was just add dash dash open to the Phoenix new generator. And maybe somebody else was maintaining that maybe open proper, you know, like Parker is <laughs> maintaining them. I'm not, I'm not saying that like maybe somebody else is maintaining it as a community effort at that point. Right. It's not really the responsibility of like Phoenix core to take care of that when things break and, and open upgrades. Cause it does couple a little bit more to, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I don't know what like the community's thoughts are there, but I kind of wish that, that would be more open that we could just add like a, a bunch of other flags <laughs> and, and maybe and maybe relax the testing requirement of that always working you know because <laughs> that would just that would just be difficult to always make it work so like always having like these maybe listing these other ones is like an asterisk support is not official or something you know so your mileage may vary because <laughs> there's other examples too like you might want Nebulex for for caching, or you might use uh, Alpine JS, you know. And so there's a generator to help you set up like how to hook Alpine JS into LiveView updates, right? Or HTMX, you know, uh, for that matter, you know, another JavaScript thing. Maybe you want GraphQL, you know. So there's like a dash dash absinthe flag, and it, and it kind of sets up some boilerplate that works with Phoenix and brings in the absinthe Phoenix mix dependency, all that kind of stuff. I would love to see that. I'd I'd see it. Again, as an asterisk of your mileage may vary on all these, you know, but I would love to see more of that in in the Phoenix generators. I think that would be pretty helpful for a lot of folks, but you start getting into opinions. So what do you think of that, Victor? You know, would that be a good thing? Like, would you help maintain that? Like, where where do you see this this going? What what are the errors in my logic here? (laughs) So, So, yeah, I think you're touching upon something really interesting there. And I kind of agree in one stance with the Phoenix core team in that, you know, keeping the generators kind of light, like, and also avoiding too much of opinions. You know, you don't want to say that, you know, Oban is the only job library that we're supposed to use, you know, because who knows, maybe some someone will come up with a really good other alternative, you know, and we don't want to block that too much. So I, I kind of think it's good that they're keeping the generators somewhat light, focusing on, you know, making all of Phoenix even better. It would be nice, though, if you could have some kind of installer into the <laughs> Phoenix installer so that everybody could, you know, write. I mean, I know this is not possible today, but it would be in a dream world, you know, the Oban maintainers could write the package that, you know, install it to your generators and, you know, every library could opt in to do that. But in absence of that, I don't think that's even possible with how Elixir is structured at the moment. But in the absence of that, I think there is, you know, totally reasonable to maybe have, you know, an alternative Phoenix generator that is, you know, maintained by a community. And, you know, if this resonates with people, feel free to reach out to me and, you know, maybe I will start such a project to, you know, maintain uh, such a one, but I don't want to start it unless, you know, some people want to use it because (laughs) that's going to be quite commitment to make sure that it's updated for every Phoenix version, you know, uh, stuff like that but yeah otherwise i will just keep doing this for for my own projects but if there is <laughs> interest from people in the community send me a you know tweet or something and you know say that you're interested then you know maybe i will do it 
Yeah. So I I do have a, a firmer opinion though on like UI elements, right? Like UI related stuff. Like I have a design system that could be your total, like a, a different package that your, your organization manages. That's for your organization. You bring it in. Right. And, and I'm talking about the things like core components, like what Phoenix new will generate for you nowadays. So they'll start you off with like core components and you could package up your your design system into another hex package that you just bring into your main app and you just go from there or don't put it in a hex package that's fine too <laughs> just, but if you have to share it across different microservices that are all using elixir or something like that would be fair to put in a hex package a little bit more tedious to manage updates and all but worth it i think to keep a, to actually have a design system <laughs> otherwise you'll have old old stuff on on some of them and new stuff on the others right Anyway, so that seems like a clearer delineation to me for like template kind of stuff. Like that's not so much a generator more than it is like just sharing what do designers call these things? Atoms, modules, and whatever the other ones are. <laughs> but modules being like the higher ones where it's like a button. Atoms being like the color. I don't know. I'm not a designer. I'm getting this wrong, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Victor, we are unfortunately almost out of time, but... I have enjoyed talking about and exploring around more about templating and templating our Phoenix code and not just Phoenix, but like the, the code that lives in our Phoenix projects, because typically that's that's what we're talking about. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, so I just want to encourage everybody to kind of just go and look at the code and see that it's not so strange. It's not so hard to modify in case you want to do that. You can always create a totally new generator influenced by the existing generators doing something completely different. Perhaps you want to just generate tests or, you know, it could be anything that you do more than once. I think that's a, a big message there is it's not scary, right? It's just code. And a new way of being able to play with your environment, your project that you live in and work in. So cool. Well, thank you, Victor, for talking with us and walking us through your blog post and the project that you kind of brought to our minds. And I was interested to learn about how Phoenix Gen generators in my project can be overridden locally. I didn't even know that. That's really cool. So yeah, Thank you for that. So if people do want to get in touch with you or follow you online, where should they go to do that? Yeah, so you can reach out to me on, you know, Twitter or, you know, email me or, you know, contact me through my website or I'm also on Mastodon. I'm, I'm a, I can be a little bit slow to reply there because I'm not logging in every day. I'm trying. So you can reach me anywhere on the internet almost. Again, feel free to reach out in case you feel that it would be some value of having a community driven alternative uh, generator for Phoenix. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.